study in Matthew this morning. And we're actually going to be finishing up chapter 25. So if you've been following along, you want to find your place in your own Bibles uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 25, you can do that. Uh, this, we, there are 28 chapters in Matthew, so we're getting really pretty close to the end. We're, there's only three chapters left. And this is really the end of Jesus' major teaching in the book of Matthew. From here, in the last three chapters, we're going to see Jesus going uh, from you know, being betrayed and arrested and going on trial to being uh, condemned and crucified and then resurrecting and, and then eventually ascending. So all of that's going to happen in the last three chapters. is packed with a lot of narrative for the most part. Uh, Jesus is going to sprinkle a little bit of teaching here and there you know, with his disciples, but f- for the, like, the actual sermons and, and teaching that, that, de- that are presented as a section of teaching in Matthew, this is the last of them. So it's kind of significant that this is the teaching that Matthew, at least um, in this gospel account, has chosen to leave us with as, as far as kind of culminating or, or wrapping up and summarizing Jesus' ministry. And it's kind of, he's been going through and telling lots of parables in typical Jesus fashion. He uses lots of parables and imagery. In this particular passage, it's, it kind of seems a little bit like a parable because he does use imagery, but it's also a prophecy. Um, he's going to use the symbolism of sheep and goats. And through this imagery, he's going to reveal the eternal consequences that uh, we have as a result of how we treat People, in particular, the least of these, as he calls them, uh, the the least of those in our midst. Jesus is inviting his disciples and, in turn, us to reflect on our attitudes that we have towards people, our choices that we make, our priorities that we have, uh, in a way that that compels us to examine how that reflects on our, our faith and our discipleship. Jesus is continuing, as he has been the last couple chapters, on the theme of the end times, of the coming judgment, of his return. He's going to come again, he says, and judge the whole world as the sovereign king. And this passage is going to conclude on that theme, but with a very practical uh, applicable message. He's been talking all about this you know, cosmic end time stuff, and now he's going to bring that to a close with some very actionable um, present-day items um, or lessons for his disciples. So let's open our hearts to the, the wisdom that Jesus had for his disciples then that's every bit as applicable now uh, to inspire and challenge us to move and to be moved to action, to actually do things for the kingdom um, as a response to what Jesus has done for us. And that's what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus, a Christian. So, um, so he, he says, again, Jesus, he's been saying he's going to return. And in this passage, he's going to describe how he's going to separate people into two groups. The sheep and the goats are the two images that he's going to use to describe these people. The sheep are going to be the ones who have shown mercy to the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the thirsty, the naked, the sick. The goats are going to be the people who did not show mercy to those people. And again, it's just a powerful reminder that our actions today have eternal implications. Eternal. 
Not just implications for tomorrow. You've heard that what we do today affects tomorrow. But what we do today affects eternity. Eternity itself is just a concept that I can't even wrap my head around. When we show mercy to others, we're also showing mercy to Jesus. And when we do not show mercy, we're not showing mercy to Jesus, now and forever. So it's a statement, it's, Jesus is telling them, this is something that will happen. It's a prophecy, it's truth, it's truth. And it's also a call to respond to that truth. So here's the, fa- here's the fact of what will happen, here's what you should do about it. Specifically, it's a challenge to be compassionate and merciful toward our fellow humans. If I were to boil it down, that's the whole, that's the whole sermon in a, in a nutshell. Be compassionate and merciful to each other. Take care of each other. That's it. It's a reminder that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, that's one of the greatest commandments. But we're going we're gonna, to um, beat it to death and, and spend some time uh, unpacking it. So let's read together first the, the whole passage together, starting in verse 31 of chapter 25. And this isn't the whole passage, that's just my quick summary of it that I'll leave up there for a bit. All right, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and and come to you? His disciples would have been very confused at this point. I'm just going to pause for a second. Because Jesus has been really taking care of them. He's fed them and, and cared for their needs up until this point. So they would be very confused. This is kind of a backward situation. When did we take care of you? you you're our mentor, our, our teacher, our guide. Like, this would be very confusing. In verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. So that's, kind of, that's the first two verses, the next chapter, and, and there's that, that phrase that tells you even that you're, it's the end of one major section and the beginning of another. When Jesus had finished. So that's kind of the, that's that cue telling you that's the end of a major section. And we're going to move into the narrative Lord willing, next week. And this passage is often used as a really easily applicable passage to highlight the importance of compassion and the call for caring for the vulnerable and and the weak people in society. It expresses the idea that genuine faith and genuine righteousness, right standing before God, what he really wants from us is the expression of our love for him and for our neighbors through that loving service towards others. Acts of service, not just out of a sense of obligation, but because we truly love the people around us. And the way we treat others around us also reflects our relationship with God. Right? So if we treat others poorly, then that reflects a poor relationship with God. So this, this passage overall, it, it offers some profound insights into, in, on one hand, the nature of God's judgment and that cosmic, cataclysmic, end times theme that we've been talking about, and also that very practical, down-to-earth um, significance of just living a life today and tomorrow and every day marked by compassion and, and care for others. So it's an interesting passage to me in that it has kind of that both uh, that, that juxtaposition of, of the end times theme and also that really applicable um, practical theme. So I want to start first by talking about the, that phrase, Son of Man. Um, and just as a reminder, it's a really significant title that's come up uh, several times before. We've talked about it quite a bit, but it bears uh, repeating. Now, this is a, a title that Jesus uses again and again to refer to himself all throughout the Gospels including in Matthew, so we've, we've brought it up. But this is a great example of where Jesus is using this title in a way that highlights his identity and his membership with humanity. The Son of Man is a way of saying human. But it also showcases him as a human in a role that is entirely beyond any role that's ever been given to any human before, far above humanity in that he, he's being shown as the divine arbiter, this divine judge for all of creation. Remember, this, this phrase has its roots in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Daniel we see in chapter 7. I won't read through it now, uh, but there's this prophetic vision that Daniel sees one like a son of man, a human, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven and, and being presented before the ancient of days, which would be Yahweh God. And this human is given authority and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. So it's really cool to me. It's this very humble-sounding title, this human, this, this dirt creature. That's also this title pointing to his divinity and his messianic role as described in, in Daniel. So using this title, Jesus is emphasizing his unique identity as both being fully human and fully divine. 
son of man and the son of God. And he's showing both roles here in this context. Because he's, he's being displayed as the ultimate judge, right? This son of man representing uh, himself, Jesus, coming in his glory, accompanied by angels. This is, a very, this is meant to evoke powerful imagery of just immense power and, and glory. Sitting on this throne to judge all nations. This is just the ultimate divine authority and sovereignty to determine the eternal destiny of every individual and every group of people based on their actions and their treatment of others. So he's affirming his divine identity, connecting himself with messianic prophecies, and also reminding us that he is unique and that he is a human and is not a judge that is entirely other than us. He is one of us. We are judged by a peer, one of us. So notice too, it says he, who, who is it that gathers uh, before the throne of Christ? When it says the Son of Man comes to judge, who is he judging? Who's gathering? All nations, right. So what does that mean? What does that phrase, all the nations, mean? There's a couple ways to interpret this. It could refer literally to actual nations um, or, or groups of people or societies, countries, if you will, to be judged collectively based on their actions. That's, uh, that's how some people read this, this passage, especially how those groups of people as a society treat the so-called least of these, the most vulnerable people in that society. Another way to look at it would be the nations being a little bit more symbolic and representing really all people collectively as a whole. Because that's really, if you include all nations, that does include all people, right? There's not some people who aren't part of a nation. This word here used in, in the Greek, um, it's, I'm not sure how it's pronounced exactly, but it's ethna. Um, so that's where we get our word ethnic. Um, it's, it could be translated nations, peoples, people groups, ethnicities, Gentiles even. It's used to refer to anyone who's not, um, not your own. So it's, it's really meant to be this inclusive statement of all people. So in either case, whether it's referring to all people or you know, all the nations and, and groups of people coming, either way, the criteria for the judgment on these people is the, the feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, looking after the sick. Those, those criteria, I think for us as a society, in our culture, it's very individualistic in America. We typically don't think as a collective whole in our society. We more often think individually. But I think it's healthy because of that, our, our ten tendency to think individualistically, uh, to sometimes spend some intentional time considering that concept of collective responsibility and collective judgment um, and the responsibility to be an active part of our society as individuals because we share responsibility as a society to work together because no one of us can solve the world's problems. No one of us can feed all the hungry people. It takes cooperation and working together as a, as a society. <clears throat> to care for, for those who can't care for themselves. 
So in, in generally speaking, hunger, poverty, these are social issues that require social cooperation to solve. And the church is, is called to be, to be that society that is the driving force of um, solving those issues. That doesn't mean we don't have individual responsibility, right? If there's a corporate responsibility, it's because each individual has a responsibility to that greater uh, part of the whole. No, nobody in the military has a grasp of that concept, right? The importance of working together while also being an unstoppable force on your own, right? Isn't that kind of a, a concept, the military? No? Kind of? <laughs> So whether you look at it uh, collectively or individually, we're talking about this process where Jesus is separating, right? He's separating individuals or groups of individuals into those he places on his right and those he places on his left. And he compares them to <laughs> sheep and goats. So I do want to spend a couple minutes talking about this, this imagery. They serve a symbolic purpose, right? To convey different characteristics and, and behaviors associated with these individuals in this context. So sheep and goats, and in turn, the people who took care of them, so the shepherds, their stewards, they're very common in the Middle East. During Jesus' time, they always have been, and I think they still are. So we see them used pretty frequently throughout the Bible as, as symbols for different things. Sheep, goats, other types of cattle, uh, they were often seen as symbols. Uh, sheep in particular were often symbolizing God's people, and goats were often used as a symbol for the wicked. I don't know why that is. I mean, sheep are pretty cute, right? Little lambs, so innocent. Uh, they're, they're very often associated with positive qualities in biblical symbolism. They're seen as gentle and meek, um, submissive and, and uh, quiet. They're often used as, as metaphors for God's people in the context of emphasizing how dependent they are on God in the same way that sheep are dependent on their shepherd. And their willingness to follow their shepherd is paramount to their survival and, and for them to thrive in their lives. And the same is true of us following God and submitting to his will and his guidance. Sheep are also known for uh, flocking together, right, and staying together and having um, strength in numbers and security in numbers and taking care of each other. Which, just as a side note, I don't think this is what Jesus was getting into, but just thinking about sheep and how they flock together, that's certainly an advantage. There's strength in numbers. But that can also cause sheep to very easily be led astray, doesn't it? You have a bad shepherd or even just a stray sheep that leads the rest astray, and you can all of a sudden have a major issue. Just a side note. Um, and Jeremiah 56, uh, chapter 50, verse 6, um, kind of illustrates how that can happen. Uh, My people have become lost sheep, he says. Their shepherds have led them astray. So in this case, he's not talking about God leading them astray, obviously, right? It's these bad shepherds leading them astray. They have made them turn away on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who came out against them have devoured them, and their adversaries have said, We are not guilty inasmuch as they have sinned against Yahweh, who is the abode of righteousness, even Yahweh, the hope of their fathers. So in that context, I just wanted to point out that 
using that imagery of sheep? Yeah, we should be sheep in the sense that we're unified, we're a flock, we're together, and that we put our faith in the good shepherd, and we don't follow other distractions or temptations or other particularly charismatic sheep or strange shepherds that look more interesting than the one we're used to. Um, so in, in the parable, in this context, the, the sheep are representing people who demonstrate compassion and selflessness by caring for the needs of others. They're characterized by feeding the hungry, giving uh, water to the thirsty, clothing, and aligning themselves with the, the needs of the vulnerable and mar- marginalized of their society the way Jesus did. So that's, that's the sheep, right? In that sense, we're called to be sheep. And then we have goats. And goats have some other characteristics. <laughs> Does anybody here actually own goats? Nobody. Why not? They smell bad? Yeah? Can't keep them in. I was actually kind of hoping there'd be someone here who has goats and likes, likes goats, because there are people out there who like goats. I don't, like, hate goats, but, I mean, they're pretty, pretty nasty sometimes. <laughs> they were mean. My grandmother actually always hated goats. She grew up in the Depression on a farm, and when she was little, they had this goat that they would never get rid of because you would never just get rid of something that was useful at that time. But apparently this goat would bite her and chase her all over the place and eat everything she owned, and she just hated goats her whole life because of that. And you can find all kinds of crazy videos on YouTube of goats screaming and making all kinds of unholy demonic noises. And I am convinced that goats are inherently, they're just born possessed, I think. Because, I mean, look at those faces. Has anyone here played Goat Simulator? Anybody? All right. <laughs> like one or two hands, yeah. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous game. But if you're not convinced that goats are possessed, play that game and that'll convince you probably. It's hilarious. And there are possessed goats in it. Anyway, I, there are some people who like goats. They, they think of them as pets and they love them. Um, but one of the things that I've heard from people who own goats is that compared to sheep, they are very much more individualistic personalities. They're kind of quirky, kind of like having a dog. Every dog has a little bit different personality. And for better or for worse, you know, they're not as easygoing and docile as sheep. They're very stubborn, um, independent, and they have a tendency to just wander off and do their own thing. So in this, this context, uh, the, the goats are symbolizing the people who are neglectful and disregard other people. They only care about themselves. They don't engage in acts of mercy and, and compassion. So they're separated um, to represent the separation from, from the righteous and the, the failure to align themselves with Jesus. So it's this very, these two very contrasting symbols uh, to illustrate the distinction. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that goats are actually inherently evil or, or that sheep are inherently good. I'm sure there are annoying sheep and wonderful goats out there, and neither of them are inherently good or bad. They just happen to have these characteristics that lend themselves well to the, to the example. But why... All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and move that picture off the screen for you. <laughs> <coughs> I knew, I knew that would make Mike twitch the rest of the <laughs> sermon if I didn't. So why, why would the example of sheep and goats being separated even be an example in the first place? I was curious about this. 
Because yes, they're very different personalities, but usually you know, in the daytime, they're, they herd together, they graze together, they get along together. It's not like they fight, at least not much. So, but when the shepherds would bring them in at the end of the day, they would typically put the goats into a sheltered area while they would leave the sheep out in an open air pen. Um, why, I don't know. I'm not a farmer or a shepherd, but that's just what they did. So that's why it would just be a daily occurrence. So again, Jesus is not describing some strange thing. Why would they separate the sheep from the goats? He's describing something that would just happen every day. And that's the point of, uh, I know this isn't a parable, but parable-like examples that Jesus gave. Um, in Ezekiel, even, we see a very similar concept. Ezekiel chapter 34, 17 says, As for you, my flock, says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should be shepherded in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures, or that you should drink of the clear waters that you must foul the rest with your feet. As for my flock, they must be shepherded on what you tread down with your feet and drink what you follow with your feet. So there's, there's some more going on in this passage, but he, he's using that similar imagery of sheep and, and of goats and separating. And it's that, that process that picturing the separation requires, they're very similar animals, right? The shepherd needs to know <laughs> which one goes this way, which one goes that way. And Jesus is saying that he is the one who knows perfectly how to judge and how to separate. So the next question then is very important. What is he judging people on? In this particular example, what is the determining factor that either condemns them or saves them? And then this isn't meant to be an all-encompassing example of of judgment, but it's an important one because this is one that Jesus chose to point out at this pivotal moment in his ministry. And it's this, the sin of omission. It's to fail to be aware of the needs around you and of being fully capable to do something to meet those needs and yet doing nothing. Even worse, being aware and choosing to do nothing, turning a blind eye to our neighbor's suffering because we don't want to be inconvenienced or for our pleasure and our own comfort to be diminished at all, even just a little bit, let alone a lot, by taking on someone else's problems and their needs. Whether that is literally feeding and clothing people, which is a very real need, even right here in our community, and even more so around the world, but even it can be sometimes just being there for someone to listen, to care. Sometimes a compassionate ear or a compassionate shoulder is just as effective and important as a compassionate hand to help with physical needs. In either case, it's simply a, a, an expression of a compassionate heart that is willing to meet people wherever they are, and to provide whatever it is that they need, exactly like Jesus did. And I truly believe we all have something to offer someone else, even if we are in that really needy category, that woman who had nothing but still gave everything she had, two coins, um, that's still important to give whatever it is that you have to offer um, and not 
selflessly uh, hold on to it like yourself. So it's not, it's not just the rich who are called to be generous and compassionate. So the judgment process, like here, here he's saying it's like separating the sheep from the goats. But he also, he told a parable, one of his most well-known parables, in fact, is found in the book of Luke. And it showcases the contrast between those who ignore or even despise someone in need versus someone who shows compassion. There's a perfect parable that, that gives an example of this. Can anyone guess what one I have in mind? A lawyer comes up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well, what does the law say? You're a lawyer, you know, you know the law. What does the law say? What does the, the lawyer responds with? Oh, well, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly the answer that Jesus gives. So it's a perfect answer, right? Jesus agrees, yes. Perfect lawyer answer. You got the facts right. But he knew the lawyer was really just trying to justify himself, to get himself out of a speeding ticket he knew he deserved, right? That's kind of the implication here. And he asks a simple question. You say, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, this man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, was attacked by robbers, beaten nearly to death, stripped him naked, beat him, and took everything he had, left him half dead by the road. And then one by one, a priest happens to come down the road. A priest, a man of God. He sees him injured and passes along on the other side, avoids him. Same thing happens with a Levite, also supposed to be a man of God, spends his days in the temple, sees the man, walks around him. And then comes a Samaritan, despised by the Jews. He's on a journey, comes to the man, has compassion, takes care of him, bandages him, and even spends a good amount of money to make sure he's taken care of uh, when he leaves. So then Jesus asks the lawyer, well, which of these showed love to his neighbor? Of course, the Samaritan. And he tells him, go and do, do likewise. How many of you have heard the story of the Good Samaritan before? Right? Pretty, pretty well-known story. And that, that story under, underscores the, the idea of, of showing kindness and love towards all people, not just our immediate families, our immediate neighborhoods, our immediate church families, or even our immediate social groups and ethnic groups and, and communities which would have been kind of all encompassed in that story of the Good Samaritan. What's, what's significant about the, the schism between Jews and Samaritans, it was ethnic, it was religious, it was cultural, it was all of those things. There was so much animosity, and yet Jesus is saying, they're still your neighbors, you should still care for each other. And, and that story has become so well known that even that term, Good Samaritan, you hear that used to refer to anyone uh, who helps out a stranger. You have Samaritan Hospital here in, in uh, Watertown. So when looking at passages, either the passage, Matthew 25 or even this parable of the Good Samaritan, it can tempt us to start you know, thinking about uh, 
judgment and salvation being works-based, right? All of this talk about what we do and how we should think about how we treat others and our actions doesn't mean that our salvation depends on being good enough to earn it. And that's, that's still true, even though we should still be attentive to these metrics by which we will uh, be judged. These metrics are just the obvious outward visible symptoms, right? Through the proof of our true relationship with God. Jesus has said multiple times, the whole of scripture comes down to loving God and loving others, right? That's even what the lawyer said. Knowing that is one thing and actually living it is another. And that's the point that Jesus was getting across to the lawyer. You can say love God and love others, but are you actually internalizing that to the point that it affects the way that you even see the world, let alone interact with the world on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is anyone in our lives, and it's being willing to provide for their needs in any way that we can. So we can walk away from this, this teaching knowing that Jesus, uh, from Jesus, knowing that our actions in this life have eternal consequences and that God cares deeply. We hear about Jesus talking about eternity and, and heaven and, and how you know, life is but a vapor and Ecclesiastes. You know, the, there are good reminders not to take this current life too seriously because it is short, but it's also, that doesn't mean we should ignore it or not care about it at all and become apathetic. Um, it's quite the opposite. Because the king will judge uh, based on uh, their reception and treatment of, of the least of his brothers and sisters. Back in Matthew twelve fifty, in fact, he said something very similar. Uh, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right? So in considering that context of really everyone who is in God's family, uh, how we treat each other is, is really the most important thing as, as a church. If there's div- uh, division within the church, then, that's, then something really, really um, bad <laughs> has happened in that, in that situation. He's shown, God has shown us grace and mercy beyond what we can even comprehend. So he wants, us, he wants to see us reflecting even just a small amount of that back to each other. If we have all, we all claim to have received mercy from God and to accept his forgiveness, if that's true, then we ought to be willing to show that uh, fraction of that mercy and forgiveness towards each other, right? We really should not be holding any bitterness towards each other. If someone else who doesn't know the love and and mercy of God doesn't forgive me, I understand that. He doesn't know um, what I know. But all of us in this room, if you have, if you've experienced the forgiveness and love and mercy of God, then I urge you to show that to others. And if not, if you have yet to experience that, then by all means, uh, talk to some other of, others of us who have, because we'd love to, to share. To be a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it necessarily is accompanied, if you accept the gospel, the message, if you say, yes, that's true, I, I acknowledge it, it also must be accompanied by compassionate treatment of each other. Mercy is, it's by definition, not something that we deserve or that we can earn. It's something that's freely given. 
And as we have freely received it from the Father, we must freely give it to others. So without expecting anything in return. Not so that we can uh, feel good about it, though it does feel good. Uh, Not so that we can become really well known for how generous we are. Not so that we can become more rich in heaven. It's, It's not about that. It's a, this passage is a challenge to remember that we are all neighbors and that we're called to be compassionate and merciful with each other. So those are the, the concepts. I want to spend the last couple minutes that we have uh, getting, getting listy. I have a couple lists uh, to get really practical. I want to just talk about some ways that visible compassion, what are some ways that you can see compassion, mercy, in action. What does that look like for us today? I have a handful of ideas, um, some of which, uh, some, some ways in which um, having a perspective like Jesus, if we align the way that he saw people the way that he did, how does that impact our, our day-to-day lives? Um, I guess I'll throw mine up here, and then if, I'm curious if you have any other ideas to add to it. One, actually, so volunteering is one of the first that comes to mind when you think of community outreach. Volunteering is kind of a, a go-to, right, even in, in secular circles, so whether it's you know, community centers and food banks and uh, homeless shelters, things like that. We have existing communities and systems in our culture that we can get easily plugged into and volunteer. We don't have to reinvent and create new organizations for every, everything we want to do as a church. We don't have to take it all on ourselves. We can volunteer and become a part of other work that other people are already doing, or other churches even. Um, What's the other one big thing that might come to mind when it comes to doing good things? Volunteering and what else? Donating. Yeah, giving money. If you have money, you have liquid assets, financial means, consider sharing some of that, donating to um, nonprofits, charities. Of course, we talk about giving to your local church body, um, tithing, that's important, but just being generous with what you have, whether it's money, um, your, if you have multiple cars, you know, and, and being able to lend a car, or uh, you have an exceptional cucumber crop, share some with your neighbors, and you know, like it doesn't matter, whatever, just having that mentality of wanting to uh, be generous with what you have, what you've been given. Uh, just simply, <coughs> excuse me, um, being uh, kind and respectful. It sounds so simple. It's something we try to teach our kids, right? I hope we all are trying to teach our kids to be kind and respectful, but it's such a, um, it's, it's so easy to say, again, and, and another thing to do in every given moment, to really consider every, if you think about everything you ever say and do and, and ask yourself, is this kind, is it respectful, how many times would we stop ourselves short of, of doing or saying something. Regardless, too, of how much we have in common with another person, our backgrounds, our ethnicities, our circumstances. Um, and then s- just having a small, small act of kindness can go a long way. Uh, and it's, e- even if it's not overtly Christian or spiritual, you don't have to say Jesus loves you every time you do something nice for someone. And it's still good. You don't want to be ashamed about it. You should be willing to talk about Jesus, but you can also just do something nice, just to do something nice, um, no matter who they are. So then 
<laughs> inclusivity is, is a word that itself is kind of politically charged now, and I'm not getting into all of that. So regardless of politics and policies that are trying to legislate inclusivity, um, the concept itself is a good one. Jesus was all about inclusivity, right? It's, it's easier said than done. <laughs> and I think as a society where we have a lot of people with the goal of inclusivity, I think that's a great thing. I think we have a lot of different ideas as to how best to actually make that happen. And that's just the way it is because we are um, imperfect, corrupt humans and we don't always feel inclusive. Like it's just, it's just the reality of, of what it is. And it's important to, if we are actually to make progress in solving that, we have to recognize the core issues of corruption of the heart and sin. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Education, uh, so not just going to school, but just being aware of the challenges that your community faces, that your church family faces. And in today's society, we can be fully aware of most of the major challenges in the, across the whole world. It's kind of an unprecedented era of awareness or the potential for awareness. And so just even taking a little bit of time to become a little more aware of um, challenges and justices, uh, the needs of different individuals and communities throughout the world. Um, things like, uh, it was a while ago now, but this church got involved in helping solve a very imminent hunger issue that was threatening the lives of people in uh, Africa where my wife's parents live and, and serve. And so just being aware of that, we, w we would have had no idea unless her mom came in and told us as a church. And because she told us, we were able to uh, help a little bit. And, I, and that was a really cool thing that we got to experience helping people who we've never met thousands of miles away in a way that was still close to home in the way that it affected uh, my family and uh, that we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't know so just that's part of that that education is simply knowing what is is needed actual education of you know learning math and science is also important too uh, empathy. This is another thing that we try to teach our kids, and if kids don't grow up with empathy, then we usually say that, that there's some kind of issue there, right, that we need to try to um, adapt for and work around if there's not a sufficient level of, of empathy. Just simply understanding the experiences of others. And if we have gone through an experience like hunger uh, before or, or poverty, then, and we know what it's like, then by all means, we ought to empathize with anyone else who's gone through a similar situation. Uh, but we can also try to be, at least there's maybe a, a distinction between compassion and empathy, um, and that empathy perhaps requires that you have truly experienced something before. Um, but even if you haven't, you should be willing to recognize, you know what, I've never gone through that. I can't even imagine how difficult that is. Uh, so of course I'm going to do what I can to help, and I'm not going to think less of that person because of it. <laughs> Again, I, uh, sustainability, that's another one that gets into politics and policies, but in general, uh, just thinking about the earth we live in, this kind of goes back to that idea of not, not having an apathetic mentality of giving up just because, yeah, God's going to create a new earth, that doesn't mean we should give up on uh, the world that we live in today, right? So the idea of sustainability and wanting to actually care for the earth and, and gardens and, and and creation in general, that's part of what humans were created for. So we should care about these things, and we may disagree on exactly what's best for the earth and how to, you know, 
best steward the earth, but we should at least be trying to steward the earth to some capacity. Um, another one, it would be participating in policy. So I, I mentioned politics. We don't get into specific politics as a church. We don't believe that's what a church family is called to do corporately. We believe, though, that each individual person uh, should be involved at least to a certain level of awareness. Not everyone's going to be a politician. Um, but certainly there's a place for, for Christians to be in politics, right? Um, because there are opp opportunities in our, the, the uh, government that we live in, we can actually make changes. Um, and that's, to me, that's a, a great uh, blessing. So we should be, if we're not in, in uh, positions of leadership, being at least aware, uh, informed enough to know who to vote for in your local governments and, and beyond. Uh, number nine, and I do have 10 total, of course, because it's a nice even number. Number nine is just listening. Again, I wanted to bring this up because it's just so simple and yet so much, so many of us, I know I, <laughs> standing here talking to all of you and heard maybe a couple words spoken. I, I'm definitely someone who likes to talk more than I like to listen. I have to remind myself to just like listen sometimes. And sometimes, especially men and women and wives, a lot of times we have to remind ourselves not to try to solve every problem. Sometimes our wives just want to listen, want us to listen and, and empathize, right? And be compassionate. That's some, sometimes what they need. And, and men sometimes need that too. Not trying to pigeonhole anyone. Uh, but just having that intentionality of I'm going to just shut my mouth and listen and, and show that you're listening, that can mean so much. Um, whether you're validating their feelings, whether you are offering advice and support, or just simply being there. Um, and then lastly, maybe it's appropriate that it's last, is communication, whether it's uh, body language, things you say, things you do, whatever you're communicating to others, being intentional about it and asking, is this, am I showing respect? Am I showing kindness? Am I showing compassion? And Anytime, you know, the wisdom of Proverbs tells us to be slow to speak, right? Slow uh, to anger and, and slow. Anytime there's a heated discussion or we feel like we might be getting into an argument, it's always, always a good idea to just slow down and think before you speak or do anything. So super practical. Any, anything else anyone else would want to add to this list just as like a advice or to add to the brainstorm? Anyone? Tolerance. Okay, yeah. yeah. And what would that be? Um, being able to tolerate somebody's other thoughts or actions, not this, uh, you must be tolerant of what I want. You know? mm. Or fully accepting of a truth that we don't right. agree is truth, right? So there's, there's tolerance, which is kind of inclusivity of, you know, not not wanting to exclude other people, being tolerant of people who are different from you and being uh, able to have a conversation with them um, doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone all the time. That's certain. Jesus certainly didn't agree with everyone all the time. He didn't tolerate the, people, the merchants in the temple, right? He drove them out, but he was the most tolerant person who ever lived, right? So there's a, you have to be careful not to take things to an extreme that's not intended. Anything else? All right, if not, then I'm, I'm just going to uh, distill to, 
to wrap up here, um, these are kind of actionable items. I'd be curious, I, I encourage you to think about whether it's this list or other things throughout the week, just think of ways, because um, it's not just about volunteering for a specific charity or about giving enough money to a specific cause. Um, it's really saturating our whole life, and that's kind of what this list is meant to do. Um, so I encourage you to just try to internalize that. I'm gonna distill this practical list into another li two lists of three truths and three responses to those truths. Um, so why not? It, it feels silly, but it, it really helps to kind of do that. Uh, number one, the, the number one truth is that our actions in, li in our lives have eternal consequences. Right? So when we show mercy to others, we're also showing mercy to Jesus. That's what, he, that, what Jesus said. And Jesus is still alive today. So he's telling his disciples that what he did, what they did then, is still applying today. So it's, it's an eternal truth that what we do today matters. And what we do, what we're called to do, is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Much easier said than done, but we should be continually seeking to be compassionate and merciful to, merciful to all people, regardless of what we do or do not have in common with them. And then finally, that Jesus is the one, the king, the human king, who will judge all other humans based on our hearts and decide who will be uh, saved and condemned, separate the, the sheep from the goats. So based on those th three truths, these are some three general responses. The first is to be uh, compassionate, to cultivate a lifestyle of compassion. Um, and the lifestyle starts with, with a mindset. So this, this passage in particular emphasizes the importance of actively caring for the needs of others, uh, the physical, real needs, and proactive engagement uh, with, with those who were un, untouchable or, or undesirable. It's to seek out opportunities and not just wait for them to come to us to show love and, and, and assistance to those in need. So whether it's through the church family and things we do together or through other organizations and volunteer work or simply just knowing your neighbors and reaching out to individuals in, in your community or you're at your job, your coworkers, and simply having relationships with them so that you know uh, what their needs are and knowing how they can require help and in doing so reflect the character of, his, of Christ and our desire to know others reflects his desire to know us. That's another way we can show compassion is simply desiring to know people. Secondly, we're called to recognize the image of God in others. And this is something we, again, talk about all the time. And going back to Genesis and, and humans being created in the image of God, giving us an inherent divine value and purpose. And Jesus is saying that whatever we do for even the least of each other, we're doing for him. So it's recognizing the presence of Christ in the church and each other and the presence of the divine light of, of life itself, of humanity in others. So just shifting our perspective in the way we, we look at others, I think is the first step really in uh, forming the compassion, simply opening our eyes uh, to them and who they are. 
seeing ourselves in them, perhaps, if that's helpful. If, it, if we need to see ourselves and um, the, the needs that we have, the desires that we have in others, that can help shift our perspective into more compassionate interactions. And then finally, again, simply being aware of the present being a fleeting moment that has impacts for all of eternity. And that's kind of what the, this passage is concluding with the eternal consequences of our actions, right? This really is the most important concept in the world, <laughs> uh, is eternity. And the, the fact that our choices and behaviors now matter in the grand scheme of things. Ultimately, God is in control. There's nothing we can mess, do to mess up his plan, but he's chosen to make us a part of his plan and to give us a, a role that actually is effective. It, it affects change. He's given that to us. So it's not something to take lightly. The things that we do impacts the world. So we should be examining ourselves, our priorities, what, what we're doing with our resources, our time, uh, our energy, and ensuring that we align them with, with God's values and, and actively engage in acts of, of mercy and compassion and and to live with, with a sense of urgency and purpose, uh, not apathy, but that there is a real purpose that we're, we're called to in understanding uh, the choices that we make today. So in some ways, these, these words I would call us to take heed of are uh, a conclusion of his earthly teachings and, and ministry. From here in Matthew, again, he's going to shift into that, that narrative uh, so, and it gets a little crazy from here on. So this really feels like a significant milestone to me that we've reached the end of his, what I would call preaching ministry. I, think, I don't think Jesus was ever not teaching, I guess, but he was maybe take breaks from preaching, if you can say that. Uh, so these words that, that Jesus leaves us with for this week, anyway, um, they underscore just the deep spiritual importance of compassionate physical action towards the, the most needy in our society. And it, it shows that every act of kindness, whether it's, it's feeding the hungry or simply listening to a friend, is an act done unto Christ himself. So as followers of Christ, if you are here today and you call yourself a Christian, then you're called to serve others with, with love and compassion and understand that each act of service is a fundamental part of spiritual development and of your journey of forming a closer relationship with God. The more you do for others, the more you'll understand God because that's what he's devoted his whole life to, right? And his own son to serving others. So the more you do that alongside him, the more you'll understand his heart and uh, what drives him. Father, I, I thank you today for your incredible compassion and mercy towards us that you gave us the ultimate expression of your love and, and compassion in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we desire to be reflections of you, to live worthy and walk worthy in the, to the calling that uh, you've called us to as, as followers of you. And we know that uh, we're only dim reflections of the incredible example that you set, but we do pray that you would still allow us to be uh, forces of 
compassion, uh, that people would experience love and mercy when they encounter us, that um, in all of our different spheres of life, whether it's here as a church family or in our workplaces or our families at home, uh, that you would just be nudging us and, and pro- pro- uh, prodding us and poking our hearts when we are forgetting to really see our fellow human, um, whether the closest loved ones that we have that we're frustrated with or strangers who seem entirely uh, just uh, other than us, foreign to us, um, that we couldn't have a conversation with. either. Just help us uh, to overcome those barriers and obstacles and create in us unity uh, and love that, that drives our attitude and our service towards each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here. I hope you all enjoy the rest of this beautiful weekend. Thank you.